Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 14 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study podcast. And this episode is entitled, Paul's Vision of Heaven and His Thorn in the Flesh, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, this entire section of 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a group of false teachers that he calls the super apostles, and he's comparing credentials with them. Now, like we saw last time, his credentials were of his great suffering, which is unmatched in all of, of church history. No one can carry Paul's shoes when it comes to suffering for the gospel. But now he goes into another dimension. Uh, He says that he actually has been transported, as the Apostle John was in the book of Revelation, transported up into the heavenly realms to see paradise. And um, though he doesn't overtly claim this for himself, there's no doubt from the text that he's talking about himself. And that must set himself apart from these super apostles and and make his doctrine um, worthwhile. And that's the whole point. He's defending his doctrine, uh, not so much his own reputation. And then he goes on from that to talk about how God continually humbles him. And so what he's doing with that with the thorn in the flesh when he says the basic lesson is my uh, strength is made perfect in weakness, the super apostles seem to be almost like prosperity gospel lifestyles of the rich and famous type people. Mm. They were healthy, wealthy, wise, superstar type Mm. people. Paul's like, we're not. We're not impressive to look at. We aren't impressive in our public speaking. Everything we do is a display of the Spirit's power in weak, broken down, hurting vessels. And so my thorn in the flesh shows what kind of people God uses, not the super apostles. He uses those who are willing to be wounded and weak and broken. Those are the ones that God uses. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks, I think, if you know what to look for, he's really exposing the super apostles. And what they want is money. They want to exploit the Corinthians. But Paul never did that, and he makes Mm -hmm. that plain. Well, let me read verses 1 through 21 of chapter 12 here in 2 Corinthians so that we can have a sense of the passage before we dive in. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. 
The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Andy, how does this first section of this passage, beginning in verse 1, connect with the last chapter? What is Paul boasting about here, and what does he mean by visions and revelations from the Lord? Well, it seems, again, he's dealing with these false teachers called the super apostles. The super apostles, I think, um, is like a slogan that they might have even taken on themselves. Like, we, they're apostles. We're greater than the apostles. So they seem to be arrogant boasters. They're prideful people. Boasting is so contrary to the Christian life. Um, there are so many verses that Paul himself writes against human arrogance. Uh, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, uh, he says. You know, that it is a leveling, humbling work that God does in a human soul uh, to bring them to a genuine faith in Christ. It's the spiritual beggars, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, who receive the kingdom of heaven. And yet Paul uh, kind of picks up their technique to expose them and to show them um, and to show the Corinthians how corrupted these uh, servants of Satan really are. So he takes up this boasting concept. But the boasting he chose in chapter 11 was of his beatings, uh, mm. his shipwrecks, mm-hmm. um, his his arrests, um, things that look outwardly like, like uh, failures. Uh, he didn't speak of his miracles. He, he does that you know, later in this chapter, but uh, he, he's not presenting a glorious, triumphant picture because he really, he's really not even dealing with the super apostles. He's going past them. He's going after the Corinthians themselves, and he wants them to understand the nature of gospel ministry. And he's going to say it in the thorn in the flesh. Uh, God uses weak, broken people who depend on him entirely for, uh, for the strength of the spirit. That's who he uses to build an eternal kingdom. And so Paul does this whole boasting things. So he said, all right, if we're going to boast, I'm going to boast about the things that show me as weak. So that's the connection between 11 and 12. All right. So you mentioned earlier that the text seems to make clear that Paul's talking about himself here. Mm-hmm. How do we know that Paul's talking about himself in verse 2? And what is he talking about? All right. Well, we know that he's talking about himself because he says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great res- re- revelations. So that kind of settles it. He, he was talking about himself. But he's coy. He's, he's um, a little tricky 
because he says, I know a man in Christ. I've heard about this guy. Uh, let me tell you about a guy. But again, even if we didn't have verse 7, we know he's talking about himself because he's going to go on to boast about visions and revelations from mm. the Lord. I think what's going on here is this is a an experience too sacred almost to name. He almost doesn't want to bring it up. Mm. This is something intensely passionately personal to him, something God did for him. And he knows very well he didn't deserve it. Hmm. He knows very well he is a sinner saved by grace. What is Isaiah's experience of seeing the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted? Hmm. He immediately feels, woe is me, I'm ruined. And so Paul can't boast about this experience, this visions and revelations. This is the very thing uh, for the, the reason why God sent him the thorn in the flesh and would not take it away, is to keep him from becoming conceited. And so this is a holy experience that he's had. Now, these visions and revelations from the Lord were uh, of a kind of spirit transport that happened to him. Now, this is a very powerful thing here. There's lots of dimensions about this I'd like to talk about. I've thought about 2 Corinthians 12 and Paul's transport to paradise many times. First of all, the Holy Spirit has the power to put into the human mind such a such a, a an overpowering experience, visionary experience, that the individual cannot tell whether it's actually happening or not. Mm. It's that vivid. It's that real. And so Paul says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Mm. There's no way I can tell you. Because the brain has all these sensory inputs from the from the appendages, from your fingers and your toes and your and your skin and your and your hair and your and your nostrils and all the senses, and they tell you you are in a certain place. Well, if all of those things are kind of kind of intercepted by the Holy Spirit and used in some amazing, miraculous way, you're getting all the sensations, but you haven't moved at all. That's how real these visions could be. So again. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, the same message, the same sounds go out of his mouth, his lips move in one language, maybe Aramaic, maybe Greek, we don't know. But then all of these people heard him, the same message in their own native language. So somehow the Holy Spirit intercepted the sound waves from the eardrum and changed it to their native language. Mm. God has that power to do it. And so Paul says there's this visionary experience. Now, what is it of? It's a visionary experience of paradise, of heaven. He's transported up. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, the apostle John on the island of Patmos has a vision of a door standing open in heaven, and a voice comes to him, the same voice he had heard earlier, Christ's voice, saying, come up here. And it says, at once I was in the spirit, and he, and he passes through the doorway into the heavenly realms. Mm. Again, this gives you that sense of a kind of a membrane or a wall or a barrier between the natural five-sense world that we're used to and the invisible spiritual realms. And so the apostle Paul is transported by visions of, of the, uh, a vision of the Spirit into paradise. Now, this clicks in also to another uh, study that I did some time ago about foretastes of heaven that God has periodically given choice servants of mm -hmm. his, mm -hmm. foretastes of heaven that are so overwhelming that the people are exhausted. They don't know how to put into words what they've experienced. It's a foretaste of heaven. Now, it came from a book that Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote called Joy Unspeakable, and he talks about these experiences. He links it to Romans 5.5, 5, which says that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So God can pour out 
his love into your heart so powerfully that you are overcome, you're overwhelmed. So let me give you some examples of these experiences. Jonathan Edwards had one where he went out into the woods, as was his custom for prayer and meditation, and he had an experience, he said, that was for him extraordinary, a vision of the ineffable glory of Christ that kept him overwhelmed with tears to a point where he was laying on the ground weeping for over an hour. What in the world's going on? If you came up and saw Jonathan Edwards, the great Jonathan Edwards, lying on the ground in the woods, weeping, and like in another place, what is he experiencing? Well, he's experiencing a mystical or transporting vision of the greatness of Christ. Mm. His wife, Sarah Edwards, had an even greater one. Happened all night. And she felt herself lifted up almost out of the body and transported into a sense of the infinite love of God for her that was so great that she felt like she was a dust speck in a beam of light. Imagine if you were in some shed or barn or something like that. It's a bright, sunny day outside, but the barn is dark inside. But there are these these laser-like piercing beams of light coming through splits in the wood or something like that. And you can see these dust specks floating in the beam of light. She felt, I was like one of those. And I don't even know how to describe what I experienced, she said, except that it's something like all the pleasure I ever had in my entire life was distilled and boiled down to that to one instant of that whole evening that that experience was greater than all the pleasure I'd ever had in my life mm. before. Um, it was pure peace and pleasure like nothing I ever experienced. D.L. Moody had an experience, the great evangelist. He was struggling. He was ministering. He was seeing fruit, but he wasn't satisfied. And, and he was seeking after the power of the Holy Spirit for his ministry, as some women urged him to do. And he kept praying for it, but nothing came, nothing happened, nothing, nothing changed. And he was, he was very discouraged. And he said, I really reached the point where I didn't want to live any longer. Then one day in the city of New York, I had an experience. Um, It was too sacred to name, and I can't even put into words. It was such a great experience um, that as God was pouring out his presence into my life, I had to ask him to stay his hand, he said. In other words, I couldn't handle anymore. Hmm. Again, I think Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, describes this kind of thing, where Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would have power together with all the saints to grasp or to know, to comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and that they would know that love that surpasses knowledge, that they would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, to him uh, who is at power, powerfully working in us, to him be glory, both in the church and in Christ Jesus for, forever and ever. So that's a doxology. What is he saying? God has the power to pour his love into your heart so greatly that you don't know what hit you, hmm. that you don't have any, uh, you can't even put into words what he's done. Hmm. And now the Puritan John uh, Goodwin, uh, or Thomas Goodwin, sorry, uh, talked about these experiences, said that numbers of the Puritan movement had had those experiences. And he said, it's like this, a father and his son are walking along the path and uh, the father and the son are walking hand in hand, picture the son being about six years old. And the, the son knows that his father loves him and there's no doubt in his mind about this at all. He's absolutely secure in that love. But suddenly, moved by some inner impulse, the father picks up the son, hugs him, kisses him on the cheek, maybe even twirls him around, looks him in the eye and says, 
I love you. I'll always love you. I'm glad you're my son. And then puts him back down on the road and they continue walking. Is not the experience of the son after that greater than mm. that before? So what Lloyd-Jones said in that book is that, and Goodwin said it too, Thomas Goodwin said, you should pursue him for it. Actually, Thomas Goodwin uses a legal term, sue him for it. <laughs> it's like, take him to court, take God to court. You promised through the Holy Spirit to give me a foretaste, a deposit of my future inheritance, which is heaven. Give me some now. Wow. And so I think that this experience of Paul is a, is a sense of that. Also, in the book I just re recently had published on heaven, I believe this gives you an, a, a possibility of how God could transport the saints mm. in heaven back in time to see things that happened in history. I don't know that he will do this. I just know that he's capable of doing it. And that those experiences could be so real that he would show us history, not merely teach it to us in words. Mm. Heaven is about seeing, not merely hearing. It's about going beyond baby talk, going beyond seeing through a glass darkly, uh, instead seeing uh, with our own eyes. So why couldn't God show us history and he could do it by transporting visions of the spirit? All of that from 2 Corinthians 12. Yeah, an extraordinary picture here of that kind of visionary revelation uh, mm -hmm. given by God to Paul. So mm -hmm. Paul says he would boast on behalf of that man, and it seems right based on what we've just talked about for the last number of minutes that Paul would think that was something worth uh, perhaps boasting about. That God yeah, it was unique. Done that. Right. This is a unique thing. Yes. Um, he also says one other thing. Uh, the verbiage in here is interesting. He said um, uh, I he was caught up to paradise, speaking of himself. Mm -hmm. He heard, listen to this, inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to talk about. Well, that's two different things. Hmm. First of all, inexpressible. Wes, what does that mean to you? Inexpressible. I just can't be put into words. And then not, not permitted to, to describe. Not permitted to talk about. What does that mean? You're that not you allowed. Not, right? You're not allowed to try. <laughs> yeah. Like, so that's how I might I'd be put able it. to, but don't do it. Don't try. Yeah. Now John's different, where mm -hmm. John was commanded to write down what he saw. Yeah. And so it was given to John, not to Paul. Hmm. It's just again that division of labor in the scripture. It's like it's not your job to write down what you saw. Just tell the experience, but hmm. don't tell us what you saw. Yeah, that's amazing. So Paul says he would boast on behalf of that man, but not about himself. Why does Paul want to boast in his weaknesses? Why does he keep circling back to this like he does in verse 5? Well, he wants them to understand the nature of the true ministry that he wants them to do. Someday he's going to die. Hmm. He's going to pass on the ministry to Timothy. He's going to pass it on to Titus. He's going to pass it on to the Corinthians. And they need to understand the rules of the game. They need to understand what kind of man, what kind of woman the Spirit uses to advance the gospel. And he uses broken, humble, weak, lowly, finite sinners, people who are mortal, people who have physical bodies that hurt people who who struggle with fear of man and, and are with people in weakness and much trembling, but still get the message out somehow. Mm. Those are the kind of people God uses. If they think what the super apostles think, that you gotta be slick and polished and perfect, they'll disqualify themselves. They, this, I, I can't be that, mm. but it's a satanic deception because Satan masquerades as an angel of light and looks so beautiful on the outside. It's like, yeah, but that's not what it's all about. It's, out of, it's all about Jesus, bloody and dead on the cross. That's not beautiful. Mm. And it's about a, a broken down man like me standing up in front of you with weakness, fear, and much trembling, preaching to you the simple, clear gospel of Christ relying on the power of the Spirit. I want you to understand what kind of man, what kind of woman God uses. Mm. 
Now, Paul concludes this opening section about his vision of heaven Mm -hmm. uh, by saying that in some sense, his boasting would be appropriate if he were to Mm -hmm. do that. How is Paul's boasting very different from the boasting done by the false apostles he is opposing? Well, what he's talking about here, um, the boasting is of his weakness, his brokenness. You know, the very thing that he talks about here, the thorn in the flesh, I don't imagine the super apostles would have talked about that at all. But what is this thorn of the flesh? We don't really know what it is. The thorn in the flesh is some physical ailment. Some scholars believe it's related to his eyesight. Mm. There's numbers of evidences in his epistles that Paul had trouble seeing. He uses big letters to write his his name at one point. Mm-hmm. He says to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4, you know, it was because of an illness that I first came to you. And you, I testify that at that time you loved me so well, O Galatians, that you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. It's just an odd thing to say, except that his illness had to do with his eyesight. Mm. We know that when he was first converted, he was blinded and Ananias had to lay hands on him and something like scales fell from his eyes. And it could be that they were in some way damaged. Mm. We don't really know. All all we know is that this thorn in the flesh uh, tormented him. It was a messenger of Satan. And what's so interesting, it says um, that God effectively sent this um, thorn in the flesh. It was to keep him humble but it was a messenger of Satan. So this is, again, like in the book of Job, where God and Satan somewhat work together. Mm. Both God and Satan wanted Job's possessions taken from him, but for very different reasons. Mm. Um, And so God uses Satan to do things. And in this case, he pulls the the gate back, you know, the hedge of protection. He opens up that that hedge, Mm. and Satan rushes at Paul specifically with this thorn in the flesh. And Paul wants it gone. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh from me. Um, so he's asking fervently for, the, for this. Um, and the answer was effectively, no, my grace is sufficient or enough for you, for my strength or power is made perfect in weakness. So that's the answer you get to all three times. So it's a big no. Mm. Um, this also definitely refutes the um, health and wealth people, which say that no no disease, no pain, no suffering in your life um, need ever happen. If you have enough faith, God will heal you no matter what. Uh, well, what about the Apostle Paul? I've actually heard some of these prosperity teachers say, yes, but in this case, Paul didn't have enough faith. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but you do? You're going to supersede mm. the Apostle Paul in faith. It had nothing to do with that. It was just not God's will. God wanted to keep him humble. Yeah. And so this uh, thorn in the flesh comes. This t- teaches us about suffering. Sometimes God means for us to have cancer. Sometimes he means for us to have uh, lingering pain, chronic lower back pain or uh, neurological disorders or other things. And we just need to rely on his strength because his strength is made perfect in weakness. What more can we learn from Paul's response to the thorn in the flesh? Because I think sometimes the way that we uh, respond to those things that the Lord allows or brings into our lives, uh, we can struggle with how we ought to respond or what the the proper response is. But Paul responds in in a way where he pleads with the Lord Mm -hmm. to remove this. Uh, He receives this answer from the Lord, as you mentioned, that God again and again says, Mm -hmm. no, I won't won't remove this from you. What can we learn about how we ought to respond in times of suffering? Well, the text gives us some really good answers. Um, Like, first of all, pleading. So I think that it's completely appropriate to plead for God to heal us Mm -hmm. or to heal our loved one. So we plead. Uh, But then he says he'll boast all the more gladly about weaknesses. Um, 
And, and in that sense, he says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Mm. So the idea here is to learn that weaknesses and afflictions make us humble and God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you're actually in a much better position when you know you can't heal yourself. Mm. You can't solve this problem. It's too great for you no matter what it is. And, and so therefore in general that we learn to delight in weaknesses. So that would be perhaps a single man or woman that's yearning for a godly spouse and can do nothing about it. Mm. They just have to live another day single today and wait on God mm. and to learn to delight in that to say there's nothing I can do about this. I just have to wait on God. And the same thing is true, as I've mentioned, of chronic pain or chronic illnesses or of a circumstance where couples are yearning for a baby, yearning for a child, and they it just doesn't happen, and, and they have to wait on God, and it can be very painful. Hmm. And so learning to bring it to God, but to delight generally in weaknesses, to know that they're meant to keep us low and humble because we're so arrogant and prideful, we need to be humbled. And then the, the slogan, two of them, actually, there's two slogans here. Slogan number one is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made power in, in my strength is made perfect, sorry, in weakness. Mm. So the idea is God's power works very well with weak, broken people. That's where it shines. Mm -hmm. That's slogan number one. Slogan number two is, therefore, when I am weak, then I'm strong. Well, there's something implied in that, though. He doesn't say it, but it's implied right in this text. It's mm -hmm. not far from the text. Yeah, when you're weak, you're strong if you bring it to God. Mm. If you just are weak and you don't pray and you don't ask God and you don't come to him and get closer to him and draw to the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, you're going to stay weak. But if you bring that weakness to him in prayer, as the, the hymn says, take it to the Lord in prayer, mm. then you're strong. Yeah, and I think there's a wrapped up in that a sense of uh, our sinful self-sufficiency that can rise to the surface where we uh, almost do the inverse of that, right? When I'm weak, then I'm strong. We say, well, uh, when I'm strong, I'm going to just be strong, right? But it's really when I'm strong that I'm weak. We've, yeah, I think we've that's true too. shortcut this access that God has graciously given us to his power yeah. uniquely in those times of suffering and weakness for yeah. our good. When I'm strong, then I'm weak, though it's not said. I think it is a corollary that is true, and I think the Bible proves it. So what that means is when you think you don't need God in a certain area, that's where you're at your weakest, mm. all right? You you need him for everything. Yeah. So it reminds me of uh, when um, Charles Spurgeon was raising money for the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he needed, um, I don't know what the amount was, uh, but he needed, let's say, 150,000 pounds to build the building. And someone pledged 100,000 pounds um, to guarantee the full amount by a certain date if the rest hadn't come in. And he was not widely known. It wasn't shared. It was just a private thing, but there was an inner circle that knew about it. And someone asked him, well, doesn't that make it much easier for you to trust God now that you have that pledge? He said, not at all. It makes it harder. Now it makes it easier to trust the 100,000 pounds. Hmm. And so that's the, an example of when I'm strong, then I'm weak. He yeah. said, no, I'm not going to do it that way. Hmm. Andy, how do you think the death of Christ may stand as the all-time greatest example of God's strength being made perfect in weakness? No, that's a great question. That's a, you know, um, reminds me of Michael Card's song, El Shaddai. Mm. Your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your son. I don't think it gets more awesome than that. So mm. here's Jesus dead on the cross, the most powerful thing that's ever happened on mm. earth. So, 
Paul moves then in the last 10 verses of this passage, 10, 11 verses, uh, to talk about his ministry to the Corinthian church. And we've talked a lot about his relationship with this church and the troubles that this church is going through and Paul's just desire for them to obey, <laughs> for, for them to be fruitful and faithful, but also some of the concerns that he has about them. Uh, how do verses 11 and 12 teach us about how the Corinthian church should have treated Paul? And how would the signs of a true apostle also show his superiority? superiority to those false apostles that had been uh, seeking to infiltrate the church. Yeah, honestly, the whole problem is that they're buying into what the super apostles are saying about Paul. Uh, they should have kicked them out. That's mm. congregationalism. They should have they they should have taken responsibility and not listen. Paul doesn't have to write this letter, but thank God he wrote this letter. So it's a great letter. But the fact is they should have been um, they should have honored Paul. Mm. They should have respected him. And why? Because of his ministry. The doctrine was pure. His example was pure. Signs and wonders, the marks of an apostle were done among them, he says, with great perseverance. I did a lot of healings. Now, let's just stop right there. Paul may be the second greatest wonder worker in human history, but mm. no one is close to Jesus. Mm. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of miracles. Paul Dozens and dozens, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But he did a lot of miracles. Mm. Um, they were done among you with great perseverance, signs, wonders, and miracles. So how then, you know, uh, was I seen to be so so poorly by you? Um, and so he's, I think he's, and he's very sarcastic here with this with this church in verse 13. Mm. How were you inferior to the other church, churches except that I was never a burden to you? He means financially. Mm -hmm. Now here we get into the money piece. He says, forgive me that wrong. You misread me at that point. You need to understand something. I was never in it for the money. Hmm. Yeah, very different from how he has portrayed uh, these super apostles yeah. throughout this letter. Yeah, they are They are absolutely exploiting. I think it's clear the indications are both from earlier chapters, earlier verses, and this statement now. These super apostles were absolutely in it for the money, and they were exploiting the Corinthians. And Paul uses an example here saying, you're my spiritual children. Yeah. Come on, in general, hmm. parents save up money for their children. So Wes, you and Annie have a have a new little baby boy. All right, you'll find out how much money <laughs> you have You're to lavish. Out. There's some things right now that we're like, that costs what? <laughs> yeah, we're just getting started too. <laughs> so ours are much further along, and sure. so there's college tuition and mm. all kinds of things. So, and but that parents are delighted to do that because they have the resources and all that. It's not the other way around. So it's just interesting. Look, I want to give you everything I have. You're my spiritual children. I'm not trying to plunder you. I'm not trying to exploit you. I'm trying to bless you. Yeah, and he not only blessed them with his own ministry, but the ministry of others that he sent uh, to be an encouragement to them, to come alongside them and and walk with them in the faith. How's yeah. Paul's fatherly love for this church an example for all Christians? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of what we were just saying a second ago is that it uh, mothers and fathers uh, sacrificially love their children. Middle of the night, they're sick, they get up and care for them. Whatever it takes, they'll do anything to care for their children. And that for years, even if they're grown and gone, they still will do whatever they can do to bless and to help their children. And so Paul says that I would very gladly spend everything I have and spend myself mm. as well. That's a great statement of parenting there. I would give everything I have for you. 
Paul has been zealous throughout this whole section mm-hmm. really to prove that he didn't exploit them, giving examples of uh, you know his not taking advantage of them financially, of those that he's partnered with in ministry of them and his parental love for them. It's really a, a pretty staggering picture. You can it imagine is. reading this letter and going, wow, yeah, yeah, you know what? Paul has been like a father to us really yeah. in this ministry. Yeah. Uh, how does verse 9 – explain what Paul's been doing, not just in this chapter, but really for a chapter and a half. Verse 19, sorry. Yeah. um, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? No. He said, look, the point is not I'm insecure. I'm hurt when people don't like me. Mm. And I sense that you don't like me. And I need you to fill up my (laughs) ego cup. So would you please say some nice things about me? They like me. They and they, really they like, like me. me. Finally, it's like this not that's not what's going on mm-hmm. here. As we said along, there is a li- all along, there's a link between the man and the message, mm-hmm. between how they think about Paul and what they think about his doctrine, not just the gospel in general, but the details. He's given them lots of details. Look at 1 Corinthians. How many details are there concerning so many aspects of life? Mm-hmm. But if they're going to if they're going to reject Paul, they're going to throw all that out too. And my my goal here has not been all along defending myself so that you would think well of me. I wanted you to think well of the doctrine and the example, not just the preceptual truths, but the role modeling mm. that he said, you know, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I want you to have in me a pattern of Christian living and a pattern of Christian doctrine. Those two patterns, lifestyle and doctrine, that you can have to the day you die. And what the super apostles have done is they've divided us here. So I've needed to bolster your opinion of me for the sake that you yourselves would be able to finish your salvation journey. Mm. As we come to the last two verses of this chapter, what is Paul afraid of in verses 20 and 21? And what final thoughts do you have just as we've uh, examined this chapter together. Well, he's afraid of another visit, and he talks about this at the very beginning of the epistle, how he had changed, it seemed like he had changed his mind, and he said, I was planning on coming to you, but you know, it seemed better to wait, and so I just want you to know, I, I don't make my plans in a worldly way. I don't say yes, yes, and no, no. Uh, remember all that, that was chapter one. He's saying, but looks like there may be time for another visit at some point, mm. and I'm concerned about it. Mm. I don't think, I, I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Mm. I'm afraid that he says, I'm not going to find you as I want you to be, and you're not going to find me as you want me to be. You want me to love you. you want, I want to cherish you. I want there to be good times. But instead, what I'm afraid is I'm going to find you to be the seething pit of sinfulness that prompted 1 Corinthians. Mm. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Just dysfunction. Yeah. And he lists it here. <clears throat> quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions. We saw that big time. Um, lawsuits, remember how he mm-hmm. mentions that? Mm-hmm. So you got quarreling and jealousy, outbursts of anger, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And then he mentions a few verses later, impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery. So just all manner of sins. Mm-hmm. And if you, if I come and that's what's going on, I'm going to have to deal with you. Mm-hmm. And again, Deal with, deal with me how? It's like, well, what do you prefer? Shall I come with a rod or in love and with a gentle spirit? And so it's earlier he says that. And so it's the same idea here. I don't want to have to come and beat on you. Mm. And the beating here isn't really going to be Paul. Uh, remember Peter with Ananias and Sapphira. 
Remember the fact that Paul says that a number of the Corinthians had died because mm -hmm. of their their disrespectful attitude toward the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. This this is something that could happen, and I'm afraid of that. I don't want to have to come and deal with some of you, and that the Lord will use me very powerfully and directly to bring some direct discipline to some people. I don't want that to have to happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm urging you now to repent and get things cleaned up before I come. Yeah, Andy, any final thoughts on chapter 12 as we've walked through it today? Yeah, this is an overwhelming chapter. It's really amazing. So the idea of the transport up into heaven, which gave me ideas of a backward transport back in time, which I don't know whether it will happen or not, but just knowing that it could happen was pretty cool. But also knowing something else that could happen, which is that God could do something like that for us hmm. and that we should seek in prayer a greater and expanded sense of his heavenly love for us in the Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I would just urge you, take Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 and pray through it verse by verse and say, God, please do this in me. Give me a sense of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Give me a sense so that I could be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Mm. And then see if God elevates you, kind of lifts you up off, off of earth for maybe just 30 feet. Maybe you don't go through the doorway into <laughs> heaven, but you are just elated, mm. elevated through something that the spirit does. Then secondly, the thorn in the flesh. That's an opposite experience. Go through pain and suffering knowing that God has a purpose mm. and that what he's teaching you is the same thing he was teaching Paul, that God's grace is sufficient for you for his strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, you learn how to, how to boast in weakness because when you're weak, then you're strong. Well, this has been episode 14 in our Second Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 15 entitled Paul's Final Warnings to the Corinthian Church, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.